All right, back here in Anchorage, I am uh, very excited to be joined by uh, Mike Gordon, founder of Chilkoot Charlie's. How are you, Mike? Great, thank you. I am uh, glad to be here. I'm happy you're here. I've been trying to connect with you for for a while. Um, I got a hold. You wrote a book, Learning the Ropes, which I very strongly encourage everyone um, who cares about Alaska uh, history or who just wants to hear some awesome stories about Alaska to read your book. It is, it is, we're going to go into that, but man, what a, what a, what a book, Mike. Thank you. So just, I'm reading it and I'm kind of, I'm, I was born in 84 and I moved here in 2004, but I'm reading and I can almost kind of picture what's going on back in Anchorage in the seventies with coots and with all the stuff happening. I mean, I can kind of, it's very, 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 um, visual your, your writing. Well, the, the book is selling well. Um, I'm getting great feedback on it. I just found out from Todd Communications, uh, my wholesaler, the other day, that uh, I'm number 16 on the top 25 um, sellers for them in the state of Alaska. Uh, they distribute a thousand titles, so getting a hardcover in, into the top 25 to be number 16 is quite an accomplishment, they say. Well, I think I think the more and 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 the the really amazing thing about it is that the book didn't this is for the first six months of the year the book didn't go on sale until the second quarter i think the more people find out about your book i mean the challenge is getting people to know about it i think mm-hmm. and i'm going to help spread the word but the more people find out about it uh, I, I can't imagine it won't just start booming up to way above 16 because i want to talk a lot about the book um i, I want to start with i first time i heard it, first time i heard about you was in 2016 you ran for the state house in uh, Midtown District over there, kind of Spinard. Right. Harriet Drummond's, um, you ran against Harriet Drummond, and I was running for the state Senate that year. So I started to hear this guy, Mike Gordon, and I, and I kind of said, who's who's Mike Gordon? I know Art Hackney, and he mentioned he knew you, and you mentioned you, you founded Chilkoot Charlie's, and I said, oh, man. I moved here in 04, and when I turned 21, about a year and a half later, I spent a lot of time at Chilkoot Charlie's. <laughs> Those were good days at Chilkoot's. Uh in that period of time, 2004, 5, 6, 7. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. The, and then the doo-doo hit the fan in 2008. Yep. When did you sell it? 2015 to my employees. So you were, uh, you were, the, yeah, you were, I'm sure, maybe, maybe you, uh, I might have got kicked out a few times. I'm not, I can't really say for sure, but <laughs> it wasn't you. It was <laughs> well, a much bigger guy than you. <laughs> that's a rite of passage, you know. <laughs> if you haven't been kicked out of coots, you haven't, you've done, you haven't done something right. That's correct. <laughs> Um, so let's in a nutshell, talk about the book is uh, about your life, um, starting when you were a kid in Florida and then you moved to Alaska with your parents who were teachers in 55, 1955, right? 53. 53. Okay. And, and that part's, um, that part's interesting about your, your kind of background, but, but then the Alaska part, uh, there's so much to talk about, but it's very... Um, it's personal, and you really talk about some of your, a lot of your challenges, and and your relationships. And was it hard? I mean, was it hard to write that? Was it? It's very difficult to write an honest memoir. Um, it's uh, it's a real hard thing to do. You know, you'd have to do a lot of soul searching. 
and you know when the issue with the cocaine for instance um oh yeah i did cocaine for about 15 years and i didn't really want to write about it i was ashamed of it um and one of my writing mentors out at Alaska Pacific University, when I was working on my major or my uh, master's degree in writing, David Ona Freichuk said, uh, "Mike, just just write it down." He said, you know, "If you don't like it, you can always remove it later." Uh-huh, and uh-huh. that was really good advice because once I wrote it down, um, it, it was all good. <laughs> you know, it was cathartic to right. do it, and I no longer felt the same way about it. I thought, "What the heck?" You know. Who's perfect? Uh, so, so in the book you wrote um, in that time period in the seventies and eighties um, in Anchorage, and this is some of the stuff I want to talk about. You said you really never bought it because everybody had it. Yeah. <laughs> you said there was people doing it in the bathroom at a restaurant or just on the table at a restaurant. Yeah. Well, you'd go to parties and everybody'd be in the bathroom. Wow. So, so back then, I mean, you know, now I think you know, people kind of know cocaine's heart. It's expensive. It's comes you know from far away, so it can be chopped up or. I mean, was it the same back then, or was it was it cheaper? Was it abundant? Well, it was uh, you know it was a hundred bucks for a gram, um, so it's still pretty expensive compared sure, to you know if you if you had a bartender that was doing cocaine, he was taking a hundred bucks out of the till every day at least. Oh wow! Uh, so you um, but it is you know it's addictive, um, although it's not nearly as addictive as nicotine. Quitting smoking is the hardest thing I ever did. No, I've had I've had I've known people that have done cocaine and and they've said the same thing in cigarettes and they say you know it's 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 tough but you know cigarettes are harder to far worse get get rid of than, than the coke. Yeah. So so your your kind of entrance into the bar scene, um, you you and your buddy bought this birdhouse thing, right? Well, I I I was a partner in the original birdhouse out on the Seward Highway, and, and that's down by Bird Creek. Okay, so I didn't even know. I think I might have heard about that because that's the bar at Coots is named that, right? Correct. And and what the bar at Coots is is a, an exact replication of the old place on the Seward Highway. Um, I was a one third partner in it from December of sixty seven to December of sixty eight with uh, Norm Rogberg and Johnny Tegstrom, and they were both. Uh, oh, currently the one of the RCA commissioners. Yeah. <laughs> Norm and I are lifelong friends. And anyway, he and Johnny and I bought it from the estranged wife of uh, the original owner, Cliff Brandt. And we had it for a year. And Johnny had uh, leukemia during that entire period of time, a gift from Uncle Sam. He worked out at Amchitka. I read, His I read, dad got him a summer job out there. I read that in the book. That was a very um, very sad yeah. part. So uh, we had it for a year, and Johnny was dying, and Norm wanted to go back to school, and and I had met a fellow by the name of Bill Jacobs, who was a lawyer uh, who had a condo at Alieska and used to ski on weekends and stop in at the birdhouse to drink. And I convinced him that uh, it would be a good idea to to open up a, an Alaskan-themed bar in Anchorage because Norm and John and I had all always uh, kidded about how it would be fun to put the birdhouse on a flatbed and haul it into town where all the people were. And, and we had a thriving business, but we're way the hell out there on the highway, you know. And Norm worked the week weekdays because you were selling insurance, right? And then you worked the weekends and you crashed in the, the bunk the bunkhouse in the back or something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I used to go down there and take over the place around 5 p.m. on Friday, and I'd run it until 5 a.m., and I'd go crash in the little 
shed that we had back behind there and I'd open it up at noon and run it until 5 a.m. on Sunday, go crash. Who get, are the up, co- get up at noon, run it until about 5 p.m. on Sunday when Norm showed up, and then I'd get up and go to a New York Life sales meeting in a coat and tie uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday. Did they, did they know what you were doing on your New York yeah, Life? Yeah, they did. I, I promised Bob Snyder, the general manager at the time, that if it became – Full time that uh, I would quit that I wouldn't give uh-huh. a problem, and a, a year later, a year after we sold the birdhouse, I opened up Choco Charlie's with Bill Jacobs, and that became a full time job right away. Who, who and were, so I quit working for New York Life. Who were the customers at the the birdhouse? I mean, just people passing by. I mean, going skiing oh, or just yeah, local? It, was, it was skiers and it was um, locals, and it was at that time. You know, we used to be the air crossroads of the world. And there were a lot of international customers from all over, Japan and Europe and so forth, that used to go down to Alaska and ski. There used to be an international uh, race down there in the spring that was a very big deal. So we met, I mean, we met a lot of really interesting people in there. Um, A lot of airline stewardesses showed up, you know, from the different airlines. Oh, wow, that must have been been fun, huh? It was, yeah. (laughs) I keep saying, I'm reading your book, and I keep telling myself, if I could go back in time, if, if I could fucking transport myself at my age right now into some point in time, in the whole history of the world, there's a lot of places I think I would pick, but I, I think top three is Anchorage in the 70s. Yeah, it was the Wild West. I mean, just, so 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 you and Bill, so um, if I remember this right from the book, you guys wanted to open the bar in Anchorage, you had looked at making some offers... It was kind of high, but then the oil pipeline thing started. And then it got higher. And then it got higher, and then you said, fuck it, we got we to buy something, because yeah. it's only going to go yeah, up. Yeah, we're going to have to bite the bullet here. So what'd you buy? What was it called? It was called the Alibi Club. Okay. And uh, I was concerned about the location, but it turned out that it was a pretty good one. That's where the current Coots is? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great location. Ooh, yeah. that's real good. It was kind of like a Fourth Avenue bar in Spinard, and uh, their match book had a picture of a guy uh, taking a leak and you open it up and it said uh, we aim to please you aim to please <laughs> <laughs> very clever <clears throat> but you know anchorage did not have an alaskan themed bar at that time uh, fairbanks had the malamute juno had the red dog homer had the salty dog anchorage didn't have anything like that and so i saw an opening and what that you said in the book they had kind of more just kind of middle of the road or what's the term kind of just not classic theme bars just like a restaurant bar like a hotel bar well there were there were either strip joints or neighborhood bars or um nightclubs dancing clubs you know um or just dives yeah but uh, there wasn't anything that had any true alaskan theme so you guys start uh you guys bought the place for didn't you guys borrow some money we bought we borrowed twenty thousand dollars from Bill's mother, who lived in Chicago. We paid her back in the first year. And, you, and didn't didn't someone say you couldn't you couldn't double it? The guy that I bought the place from. Well, I bought it from Skip Fuller and and Jack Griffin, and I told um, Skip Fuller that I was going to triple his business, and he said, "You may double it, you'll never triple it." And I quadrupled it in the first year. Wow! And I didn't even realize. I talked to my other friends who were born and raised here, and they knew this, but you, you brought up, you, you started Mr. White Keys. Oh, yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, he worked for me for four and a half years at Coots. 
Um, we didn't have entertainment originally, and I didn't plan on having entertainment. I was the entertainment, and my bartenders and my staff. Uh, it was a pretty crazy, zany operation. And um, we started out with a little band called the Rinky Tinks. It was a, you know, just a guy with a banjo and a, and a drummer. And we used to pass out song sheets and shaker cans, and um, people sang along, and we partied like that. And then I decided to look for some entertainment, and I put an ad in, in a, blind, a blind box ad in the paper. And I got several replies to it, only one of which I followed up on, and that was a guy billing himself as Mr. White Keys. And um, he, his, he filled out his job application form on a medical claims form <laughs> and at the spot where it said cost for this service cost for this service he said none and he didn't have a phone so he drew a map of where he was located over by Fish Creek uh, off of Northern Lights Boulevard so I went out there and talked to him and I scheduled him to come into Coots and, and I had as many of my customers there as possible to, to give me their opinion on him and he performed for the evening and it was about 50-50 split. Uh, you know, some people liked him a lot. Some people didn't like him at all. And uh, I could see his talent and uh, hired him, and we worked together for four and a half years. And, he, and then he, after that, once did he start the Fly By Night Club? Yeah, he did. He, he Well, he, he, he went to work at uh, the place that was then the Fancy Moose on um, Spinard Lake or Lake Hood whichever one it is, Spinard Lake, I think. And he had his own area there. It was a big club. Uh-huh. And so he had a part of it that was all his. And it was called the Fly-By-Night Club. And he had the fuselage of the plane stuck in the building there. And he worked there for a while. And then he moved down the street towards Coots, where his last location was. And he had his own freestanding building. And operated the Fly-By-Night uh, Club there. It's because they're crazy. Uh, but a lot of the material that he used over all those years he developed at Chogu Charlie's in the early days, he used to take a you know, month off and he'd come back and he'd have a whole new set or yeah. two. And he used to just crack us up. We'd be standing there for this new material and, and we'd be holding our sides and tears would be running down our faces. It'd be so funny. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy history. So uh, in the book, um, you, you're, you don't shy away or you, you don't, you're not scared to talk about kind of some of your um, marital issues with some of your previous wives and um, kind of infidelity, and then that you're you're still married. To, is it she, Sheila? Shelley. 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 Mm-hmm. So that's a big theme in the book. Yes, that, that, it's, you know, it's a it's essentially a love story at its core. Right, and you know, and when you're, I mean, we'll talk about later. The, the you got in the mountain climbing, and you you climbed an alley, and and fucking Vincent Massif in Antarctica, Aconcagua in South America. I mean, these are like big feats, but but at every point it was. Uh, she was a big part of uh, that, but you were married twice before that. Yes, um, and I was seven gonna, years each time. The first one was a Norwegian, right? Mormon. No, she was uh, yeah Norwegian. She was from Bergen, and her family was uh, uh, recruited by the Mormon Church. They moved to Salt Lake City from Bergen, and she left home to work in a, with for a family in the Bay Area. And I was going to the University of San Francisco, and I met her at a school dance. And, and, you, and it's crazy how you guys got, got 
ended up getting getting married, but you you were down there, and then you brought her to Alaska, and yeah. you were living in some nice house down there, and then you were like in some sh- shack or bungalow up here because <laughs> yeah. we moved into a quonset. So we lived in a in a uh, two bedroom double garage building in Sacramento with a big backyard for $135 a month. Moved back to Alaska uh, into a Quonset hut on Dubin Street for $175 a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a rude awakening. So when, once you got... She's, she's still my friend, and she's the mother of both my children. She's still in Alaska? Or? Yeah, she lives in Bellingham. Okay. Um, so what I want to ask you is, you know, being a bar owner, you know kind of in the you know right in the in your 40s in anchorage in that time period and all the party and the drugs and i mean and all these f- flight attendant you know stewardess i mean was it was it just were there a lot of women around i mean was it very was that part of the challenge of there was just always women around and you're, and you're a bar owner I mean, you must have been a kind of life of the party yeah that was the life of the party for a lot of years <laughs> um the the stewardess thing was essentially that was part of the birdhouse um, deal down in, in uh, Bird Creek in Alyeska. Um, but there were plenty of girls in Anchorage at the time, too. Um, I used to spend a lot of time at the go-go joints, which was a big deal in Anchorage back then. Oh, I bet. What was in the book? You uh, you talked about the, the Kit Kat? Yes. This is fucking crazy. So So tell me about what happened with that thing and the guy... And, and the, 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 the Hell's Angels, and they, they murdered his wife? They, they tried to blow up with, with a bomb? Well, I, I'm not sure that I would pin it exactly on the Hell's Angels, but uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was at a time when they were trying to sell insurance, the Brothers Motorcycle Gang. And insurance to the bar, to the bar owners, like, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll protect went, you from they us. Went, they went after the strip club operators first. Because they had in mind controlling the girls coming in and out of the state, also, and it wasn't Jimmy's first rodeo. He was a he'd been around the block a couple of times, so they were kind of messing with the wrong guy to begin with. Um, but anyway, he uh, yeah he ended up his wife was killed and and his uh, son was killed and the house was set on fire, and his daughter just happened to escape that morning because her door was locked. Um, and I saw Jimmy not long after that. He was living um, at the Captain Cook Hotel, and uh, he was looking for vengeance. And yeah, you you you, you write he, that that he had money to, and he got it. Um, so, and that it you know it wasn't long after that that they came and talked to me. They wanted to sell me insurance, and I wasn't buying either. I don't know anybody that bought it. So, but it wasn't not that they weren't serious about it. So at some point, um, they brought up that guy. I think you said maybe you didn't remember his name, but it was Tommy, maybe the 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 enforcer guy or the the East Coast tough guy. Well, Jimmy Sumter brought him up. Yeah, I don't remember his name. I just used the name Tommy in the book, but he was a um, a hood from the East Coast, and. Jimmy brought him up to to uh, act as a foil between he and the brothers. And this um, is the biker biker gang. Yeah, right. and I I went out to the Kit Kat Club one weekend night just to see what was going on out there because 
I knew the manager, and the manager told me that the brothers were out there and that this um, enforcer guy was out there too. So I went out. They had 20-gauge machine guns, or I mean shotguns, you know, like three of them behind the bar there at the Kit Kat Club. It was pretty tense. And this guy was there with a sort of a plaid uh, sport coat on. He was bigger than I had expected. He was a big guy. He was young, but he was a big guy. Looked pretty capable. And he was verbally sparring with the brothers. And um, I just got introduced to him, just briefly. Um, and when everything kind of blew over, uh, right out of the blue, I, I got a call from the guy one day. And he said he needed a job in security at Choku Charlie's. And I, boy, my hackles went up. You know, oh, yeah. Red flags. <laughs> and I said, well, I already got a full staff. And he said, I guess you didn't hear me. I said, I need a fucking job. Oh, damn. And I just hung up on him. So then he called back and he left me a message telling me that I'd better be packing the next time he saw me. So I called Jimmy and I, because Jimmy had dealt with him, you know. I said, "What, what do you think I should do?" And he said, "I, he said I'd call Vern Rollins, who was a friend of mine. Who, uh, you know, sometimes it's back then, especially it was it was almost necessary to have friends on both sides of the street. And and all gangsters are not bad guys. Some of them are bad guys, but they're not all bad guys. They just, you know." got a different sense of morality than the average yeah. person so anyway i called Vern and uh and told him about it and <clears throat> and then i called the chief of police brian porter who was a friend of mine and and so this guy got a call from both sides of the street uh, Vern told him if anything happened to me something was going to happen to him and brian porter said that he knew uh who he was, where he was, and that he had made a threat against me. So uh, I never heard anything more from Tommy after that. Damn. Um, so is that the same point when you you had, you had stationed somebody at the roof of Coots with a shotgun? Yeah, it was it was after I got threatened. Um, the, the brothers came into the club one day, and you know they were pushing their uh, insurance, if you will. And uh, I remember sitting just across from the South Long Bar with Bobby Bear, and he looked at me, and you know, I, I said something to him about how I wasn't buying any fucking insurance, and he looked at me right in the eye and said, "You know how close you are to the other side?" And I said, uh, "Well, if you're threatening me, I said I got enough money set aside. I'd take care of every one of you motherfuckers." Oh, you're nice. Yeah, good. And uh, that's the last I ever heard from him. But then you had the guy, there's a guy with the shotgun on the... I, yeah, I, I did. You know, I didn't know what the hell was going to happen after that. So I stationed a guy on the east end of the, the bar on the roof um, with a sawed-off shotgun. He was supposed to be up there 24 hours a day. And, and back then, the east end of the South Long Bar used to be called Loser's Corner. <laughs> <laughs> and the guys on Loser's Corner... You know, we're feeling sorry for their pal up there on the roof. So they started sending him up shots at tequila, and he got so drunk he fell off the roof into the dumpster God. with a shotgun. 
<laughs> Good help was hard to some, find. Some, some, <laughs> subpar security. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, was it? I sent my wife out of town. I was married to the ex-go-go dancer at the time, Tiffany. And I was concerned about what they might do. So yeah. I, I sent her outside So how'd, how'd you visit meet, with her family. So how'd you meet Tiffany? At the, at the club? Yeah, she walked she in. She was a lot younger, right? Oh, yeah. She walked in. She was a beautiful girl. She had long arms and legs and perfect features. And um, She walked in and told me that she wanted to get out of the go-go business, so she wanted a job as a cocktail waitress. And so I hired her, and, and she would send at odd times drinks to me down you know, down the bar. And one day she said that she had to go to Seattle for a court case of some sort and uh, needed somebody to go down there with her. Uh-huh. And then she just said, what about you, Mike Gordon? So I thought, well, why not? So I went to Seattle with her. Wish I hadn't. <laughs> why, why, why didn't <laughs> In the long run. Well, I mean, it was a good. It was a good time. Well, I think in the book you it said it was a good time. We fell in love. We got married. She she got pregnant, and I just I knew in my heart of hearts that it wasn't my kid, and it turns out later that it wasn't. You know, when we were able to, I I was expecting a call from somebody at some point in my life, and I I got the call and uh, told Shelley when she got home from visiting with her aunt in Canada. I said I got the call, and she said the call. I said yeah, the call. And so we get the call from this guy down in, uh, where was it? I don't remember, Arkansas maybe. And uh, he was, he actually I got a call from a, a private investigator. And, and, and I said, can you wait for tomorrow night when my wife gets home? Um, and he said, sure. So we talked to this nice boy who uh, thought that I was his father. And uh, and we spent maybe an hour talking to him and had a nice talk. And we didn't say anything to my mother, who was in her 80s at the time, because we wanted to make sure. And we, so we had DNA tests taken, and and uh, he wasn't my son. And I basically knew that all along. Or was is Tiffany still around? Or she's living in the states someplace. Well, was she was she part of the call? Or we was she- actually got him hooked up with her Shelley's a genealogist and um, she knows how to track things and we were able to track Tiffany down So, uh, and so he got to talk to his mother for whatever that's worth um, and, 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 the, he, and he wanted to know who his father was and she told him he couldn't re- she couldn't remember oh wow jeez so in the book I think it was with Tiffany you said maybe it was somebody else but you said you had been with this your wife for a long time and your kind of things weren't going well, and, and you said you didn't realize how well, th- how bad they were going until you hooked up with this this other woman. Oh well, that was that was from my first wife, right? Yeah, uh, Leela. Yeah, we we weren't getting along. We just fought all the time toward the end of our marriage, and so I was working in the bar one night, and this gal came in to sell me some advertising at the Anchorage Daily News. Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's right. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So we had an affair, and you said you didn't realize how bad things were, just how yeah. bad things were, until you hooked so up with I this. Spent a night with another woman. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't want to disparage my first wife, but uh, we just weren't getting along. Let's let's face it, and it was a it was a really difficult thing, and and I hated uh, um, 
putting my kids through a divorce. It was, mm-hmm. it was tough. So then, at some point, you meet you meet um, Sheila, and then Shelley. Sorry, I keep saying Shelley. Uh, Shelley, I'm saying Sheila. Shelley, and uh, you know you, you're dealing with this cocaine and the bar and and. Something else is you said your business partner in the book. I got married, but I just didn't kind of realize that I was married. You know, I was. You said in the in the still book still doing the same stuff I was doing when I wasn't married. Well, actually, the second wife was was your business partner's ex girlfriend, right? That's Shelley. Oh, that's Shelley. That's Shelley. Oh, that's Shelley. oh, well, okay. I'm trying to keep it all in line. So, and and you were in Hawaii with Norm Rokeberg, and she came. He was supposed to come and. He couldn't make it, so she came, and then you got you could you you had known her for a while because she was. I they, knew her. Yeah, I had no. Uh, she was the last person in the world I wanted to have an involvement with, um, being my partner's girlfriend. But she was breaking. She broke up with him before she went over to Hawaii. She told him she didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. Of course, you know. I mean, he, I didn't steal her from him. She, he, he ran her off. Um, is he still around? No, he's dead. He's dead. He, died. he moved to Florida and died. Um, you said in the book it was. He, you know, he didn't see it that way, of course. Oh, of course not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. You said in the book that he kept uh, he kept getting in these weird real estate schemes, and he kept needing money from the coots. And well, he built a triplex down in Bootleggers Cove, and I remember sitting in Jack Hansmeyer's office upstairs at First National Bank. Uh, when Jack leaned over the table for effect and said, "Bill, don't build that triplex." He said, if you build that triplex, you're going to have to sell a lot of things that you don't want to sell. Boy, no truer words were ever said. Because he had to sell out his interest in Chilco Charlie's in the end. I, he kept coming to me for money. And, <laughs> he kept and he, good he, he, right, he, And it was never enough. And I, he was going down, and he was going to take me with him. And I finally just said, I'm not giving you any more money. I couldn't afford to give him any more money. So he s- s- threatened to sue for specific, I mean, for... <coughs> disillusion and you guys were 50 50 or that. yeah and i said i'm just i'm not going to give you any more money so um he ended up selling out of chokuts and then he sold out of the properties and he made a lot of money i mean he for twenty thousand dollars we borrowed from his mother that's the only thing that he ever put into it so i mean by that time we had all the that property that was the parking lot in spinard and where did he pull? He we, pulled out a lot, we way more than that. Of, he pulled out a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. He he did well. So so during so you're you're married to, to um, Shelley. Your bar's going well. You got money. You're doing the cocaine, and you had kind of had a reckoning, or you, you wanted to change things, and you decide you're going to climb Denali. Well, I'm married to Shelley, but uh, we're separated, <clears throat> and we're going to we're going to counseling and um she's she's dealing with some of her issues and i I don't really know at the time that i've got issues but once i start going to counseling i realize i do have some issues and and my family wasn't uh uh, middle class normal uh, like i thought it was my dad was an alcoholic and i started reading about adult children of alcoholics, I realized that I had some serious issues. And I was taking those issues out on uh, on Shelley and others. Um, and I also realized that going to counseling, I was 
the issue of the cocaine was going to come up sooner or later. When we got to that point, I wanted to be able to say, I don't do that anymore. Well, um, it just so happened that I was reading the book uh, Seven Summits at the time about Dick Bass um, being the first guy in history to summit, get to the top of the, uh, the highest point on each continent. <clears throat> and he and his partner didn't have any climbing experience to speak of. I'd run 13 or 14 marathons at that time. I was in good shape. I figured if they could do it, so could I. I've been looking out my window in Woodside East, my condo there at Denali, thinking about it, but I I thought that uh, it required skills that I didn't have and a lot of experience. And After reading that book, I realized that wasn't true. <coughs> so, you know, I had all these acquaintances that every time you'd run into them, they'd look at you like, are you carrying or whatever. And it was just hard to break out of that cycle, so I decided that the way that I was going to do that was to climb Denali. And, of course, everybody thought I was crazy. All my, and fr- and the book all, my all my friends told me I was going to kill myself. And the book, everybody said, you're fucking nuts. Yeah. What's yeah. wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, none of them wanted to do it with me, which is just as well, because I wanted to break away completely. And so I set my sights on doing it. Um, it seems to me in my life, any time that I decide that I want to do something that everybody thinks is crazy or impossible... I, I, I'm, I know I'm on the right track. So you started climbing flat top a bunch. Yeah, I climbed flat top so many times I could have done it with my eyes closed. One time I climbed flat top, came home, changed clothes, and ran 20 miles. I was really motivated. And, I mean, this is even the marathon. This is all in the midst of a, of a cocaine addiction. Yeah. Wow. Maybe the cocaine maybe helped you out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't recommend it. So, so um, I, w- I want to do. I mean, I, w- I want to keep going here, but I want to do some more of these because I feel like in the book, each each one of these chapters is like its own podcast. But you get up to to Denali, and it was it's quite a chapter in the book. I mean, it, it wasn't uh, you know people in the climbing community. I mean, Denali's not well, some of the routes aren't exactly technical. I mean, you can you don't need a lot of you're not ice climbing with ropes and and, and screws, but um, it is it is very um, it's a difficult very difficult climb. It's the hardest thing I'd ever done at the time. And you're you're uh, you're with a group of these people. It's it's funny. So you got in the airplane from. So you oh it's you. You got in the airplane from from Talkeetna, and you you want to grab that? Well, uh, we can. It's my property manager. I'll, I'll call him back. I think he can. Away, away, away for yeah. you, um, but you're up there, and uh, it just you know you can kind of you can almost see towards Anchorage, but you're just in this whole another world of, of very cold and um, and you had gotten some altitude sickness too, right? Sorry, it's all right. You'd gotten some altitude. Um, I did. I got altitude sickness um, on my way down from the head wall. Uh, at the 14,000-foot camp. Um, and we had a rest day the next day, um, or I probably wouldn't have gotten any further than that. Uh, they had a medical tent there at the time, and they did... Um, they were experimenting with the effects of... Um, <sighs> trying to think. Hypoxia? This, no, it's this drug that... It used to be a, a, 
Oh, is it the, uh, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. Old age, I'm having an old age moment here. Um, I think it starts with an A. No. Is it the altitude sickness drug or the one you? Yeah, it it, it was originally used as a diuretic and they, they, they were experimenting on its usage for high altitude sickness. Um, I'll think of it. Let me see if I can do a little quick, quick Google here. Keep, keep, keep talking, I'll see if I can look it up. <coughs> so anyway, um, they did a, they took me on as a patient and they gave me a placebo <coughs> or the real thing they never, never really said. I think it was the real thing. And um, and then they gave me more of it and I, uh, I, I took it for the rest of the trip and I was fine. I never had another problem with altitude sickness and I took it on other trips um, but I finally adjusted to it. My body adjusted to it so that um, when I was climbing Everest, um, I never took it. Um, I got all the way to 27.5 without taking it anymore. Yeah, and when you climbed, uh, it's kind of interesting, you climbed Kilimanjaro, it, it seemed to me like that was um, almost like a no big deal. Kind of just you were in Diam- pretty good. Diamox. Diamox, Diamox right. Yeah. Um, Kilimanjaro was uh, kind of, yeah, you know, because other people were on the in the group, but you had been doing big stuff before that, and it was kind of... Well, I still had some residual fitness from doing Denali. It was only about three months after that that I did Kilimanjaro. Um, the thing with Kilimanjaro, it's a straightforward climb, <coughs> mostly volcanic scree, um, nothing technical about it whatsoever. Um, the, the problem is that you have to do it in four days. That's the schedule. You stop at these various camps and um, 20,000 feet's a lot of altitude in four days for a lot of people. Yeah. And so out of the seven of us, or no, nine of us, I think, there were there were only three of us that actually made the Uhuru Summit. Most of them <coughs> either quit early or they uh, quit when they got to the volcano rim because they were suffering from high altitude sickness and the morning of the summit the these guides over there uh, they set a pretty fast pace i didn't have any problem with it but other people did yeah the other uh the uh elbrus and elbrus in, in russia is another mm-hmm. I, i'd love to that's another whole probably different podcast just how you how you got the visa to get, you know i mean it must have been challenging to get into the soviet union and uh in the 70s well, those, or 80s, I guess it was Those issues were later, taken was, care of by the climbing uh, company by Alpine Ascent. You ever heard of uh, Anatoly Bukharev? He's got a good book yes. called Into yeah. the Clouds. Yeah, I've read his book. Yeah, yeah. So he, he actually, um, very famous Russian, he was from Kazakhstan, but he was a Russian climber, and he um, he was uh, kind of a freak of nature type, Lance Armstrong. He was just, it was amazing, his ability to be in altitude and climb. And he came to, I think it was in the late not, early 90s after the Soviet Union collapsed. And at the time in his book, he talks about, he was killed actually in Aconcagua in 96 in an avalanche. But he talks about, um, you know, the big drawback for him or the, the sad part of the Soviet Union collapse was all the money in the climbing and, and sports went away. Oh, yeah. And he, he got actually funded <clears throat> by some climbers to come here to Denali. I think it was like 92, maybe 93. And he was wearing, he had all this old Soviet gear you know that was like they were la- kind of laughing at him thinking this guy's kind of you know why does he have all this old old stuff and um he set which i think still stands an ascent record 
a solo ascent record of Denali. Hmm. And they weren't laughing after that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Arsentiev Sergei was a friend of mine. He's the first uh, Russian to summit Everest without oxygen. Um, I met him over there on the peace climb in 1989. Um, he's no longer around either. He got killed uh, on Everest w- with his wife, Fran. She was the first um, um, woman to summit Everest, first American woman to summit Everest without oxygen. She paid for it with her life. Um. <clears throat> he was uh, he was one of our guides on Elbrus on the trip where I made it. Um. Yeah, the other one I, I just think is, I mean, this this is like another poll, could be a separate fucking podcast, is the Vincent Massif in, in Antarctica and how yeah. you were you were stuck in, in South America. Chile, was it Chile or Argentina? Chile, it right? It was the tip of Chile in Punta Arenas. And you were st- stuck there, and you were th- saying, because the weather got to be perfect, and you were saying, thank God I'm I'm here and not of, uh, over in Antarctica On with the, the bad weather. Because yeah. <laughs> at least you can have to go to a bar and get a drink. <coughs> yeah, we were stuck in Punta Arenas for 11 days waiting for the weather to be perfect. We would get a report from uh, Chilean Air Force satellite every morning. And, um, the routine was that we'd go down to the elevator and There'd be a sign posted there. Um, And if we didn't go that morning, it would be reposted again at 1 p.m. You know, you you fly down there in a DC-6 with your extra fuel strapped in 55-gallon drums to the fuselage of the plane. They're all going ping-pong as you're flying down there because the the plane wasn't uh, pressurized. <laughs> on your way out, didn't didn't the fucking drum burst and you like ran out of the airplane? Oh, that's a that's a different story, but um, that comes later on. That was on the way out. On the way out, yeah, yeah. But um, when you get down there, if you can't land, uh, you're dead because you don't have enough fuel to get back. You have to land in order to refuel, and you you land on this uh, big ice field. Uh, the strip is just marked with some fifty five gallon drums. So if the weather's not good and you can't see that landing area you're in big trouble <laughs> what, what was that called that area uh, patriot hill patriot hill yeah mm-hmm. so you're with that group and you the fascinating part about that climb is i mean you're, you're in antarctica nothing's there you're part of this group and at the at the end you got very frustrated because you fell into a crevasse and you weren't roped up and they kind of said well just keep walking but it was so the weather was so bad you couldn't even see the footsteps of the person in front of you. Well, they were starting to fade, and and it was it was almost whiteout conditions, and we're we're out there, you know, in the middle of nowhere, literally. Um, at one point, I, I was following this guy in front of me, and at one, I I couldn't see him after a period of time. I'm looking all over for him, you know. I can't see him. And, Finally, I looked down at the ground, and, and there he is. And he's out in front of me. I had lost the horizon. I was looking up in the air for him. Wow. So you, and you, you had uh, you'd expressed, and you, you guys had summited, and then you come down, back down, and you had expressed, was his name Mark, the, the, the organizer of the group? Todd. Todd, okay. And he, he had actually tried to push you guys to go faster because of the previous delay, Oh, well, it wasn't Todd who was doing the pushing. It was uh, it was uh, the guy who was in charge of the uh, 
the uh, the climbing outfit, the, right? The other group, yeah, the uh, President's Cause, Club. Because you got you, you had said, you know, fuck you, we paid our money. They, the other guys can wait too. We waited. Yeah, um, he was trying to rush us. You know, it was a twenty thousand dollar climb, <coughs> and Todd was concerned that. Uh, well, he wanted us to to take off and you know make two climbs up this uh, wall. This was like the head wall in Denali. He wanted us to make two climbs in one day, and so that uh, we could knock some time off the clock to get you know to the summit. And Todd was concerned that most of us wouldn't be able to make that head wall twice in one day. So there was a big to do about the whole thing, and we finally talked him into. N- not pushing us and to just take the radio with him on the trip and and call back and forth to Patriot Hills on the way. Um, You know, we were supposed to have a a week to summit Vincent once we got there, and he wanted us to do it in three days or four days. Oh, Jesus. So there was a, I mean, nobody on the continent was in favor of that idea except him. So we finally convinced him that it was a bad idea. Because he'd had a revolt on his hands. If he yeah, had. it's a, definitely a fucking safety issue. Yeah. So you you guys were going back, and you at one point told, uh, I don't know if it was it was the other guy, the, the head of the outfit, but that he, he needed to make sure people were roped up. Same and, guy. Yeah, and, and, and not, not <clears throat> um, this is very, this is not a joke. Somebody's going to die, and you're going to get, you said you had had a lot of experience with liability, limited li- limiting liability at your time at Cahoots. Yeah, it's something that uh, I dealt with all the time in the bar business, so I considered myself an expert at it. You know, you try to avoid it if you can. Other 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 crazy thing limited, was... At least. You, you were on the uh, plane on the way, they got into the same DC-6, and you I guess you went up in the cockpit, and the woman was taking notes and writing down on a paper, and you said, what, what the fuck Well, are before you? we ever left, I'm sitting there, We you know, I'm sitting in my seat waiting to go, um, I, I mean, I got in the plane a little bit early, granted, and there's this guy who's part of the the crew there, and he's walking from the the starboard side of the plane, comes in from the wing with this big hose, with, with uh, av- aviation fuel hose, and he's going apparently through the fuselage, fuselage to get to the wing on the other side to fill it up. I don't know what he's doing, but he's hauling this hose through the fuselage and it starts spraying aviation fuel all over the place. Oh, shit. And so, I mean, I was up and out of that chair like I had a coil spring in my ass. Um, I bet. I was, you know, just waiting for the chain-smoking pilot to come walking out of his cabin about that time. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I was crazy. Uh, and then you said you're on the... You're, they let you take off and you're, you're in the cockpit and the woman... Was it the one whose husband died in the helicopter crash? No. That was some, okay, but No, she, this was a woman who was part of the DC-6 crew, and she was standing there making notes on a pad, and, and I'm, I get up, and I'm looking out the windows at the pristine, you know, scenery out the window, and, and I notice what she's doing, and I say, what are you doing there? And she says, oh, I'm just making notes uh, about different things that are not working right on the plane. <laughs> She's got a list of them, you know. Great. <laughs> she says, yeah, it's amazing how many things can be wrong in a single still fly. <sighs> oh, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> well, um, Mike, this has been, uh, I want to do, I know you're living in, you're Pelican Bay now, right? Halibut Cove. Ha- Halibut Cove, sorry, Halibut Cove. So you're down there, uh, what do you guys run, a B&B, Airbnb or something? Or a bed and no, breakfast? No, we, we have a little cottage that we rent during the summer months, but we don't, it's not a B&B. We don't, 
we don't serve breakfast or anything. Clem Tillian lives there, doesn't he? Yeah. I did yeah, a, I, I, did can, a, I can hit him with a rock. I did a podcast with him in Juneau uh, oh, four or five months ago. Uh-huh. Very, very uh, fascinating guy. Uh, well, this has been really good. I don't know how long you're in town for a while. Hopefully, we can do maybe a few more, one, one or two more of these. I'd be because... happy to. I could do them a few more before I leave. I'm not going back until the 10th. Well, I'm going to be in touch with you. I got to do meet somebody here at 2:30 for another one. But um, I just I want to talk a lot more about some of these climbing stories, and then about um, you were also part of the Anchorage City Council. Yeah, I was. Well, I'm the last surviving member of the last Anchorage City Council. Yeah, you're you're a you're an interesting guy, Mike Gordon. We got to do 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 a few more of these. Um, look forward to it. Yeah, thanks for sitting down. And folks, if you haven't read the book or heard of the book. Learning the Ropes by Mike Gordon. You can get it online or in the... I have a website called uh, MikeGordonAuthor.com. Uh, it's also available on Amazon, and it's also available at Costco and Barnes & Noble and lots of other retail okay. outlets. I assume Mike Gordon was taken. MikeGordon.com. Did you try, um, try for MikeGordon? It's kind of a common... Oh, it, common... it's MikeGordonAuthor.com. But did you, did you try to get MikeGordon.com and it wasn't... Uh... My wife did that. Yeah. She's the one that set it up. Well, folks, if you haven't read the book, um, it is a great read. It has a great Alaska history. There's names in there you'll recognize. Um, and it's just a fascinating book. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm about two-thirds of the way done. So I'm going to finish reading it, and we can do another podcast and do some talks about some more, more stories. All right. Mike Gordon, thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it, and we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. You're welcome. Thanks. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me, let me know, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Love